to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my RBP colleague, Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Great to be here with you, Jasper. We are both sitting here with this week's special guest, who is Richard Williams. Welcome. Thank you, Barney. Thank you, Jasper. Very nice of you to invite me. It's a joy to have you here. We're going to talk about music and writing about music today, aren't we, Richard? Mm -hmm. And I just preface this by saying I kind of owe everything to you. You probably don't even know this, but you probably do know it. So you actually gave me my big break in journalism and... I owe you a lot for that, but also just the pleasure of reading you for many, many years. And I was reading you before I started doing a few things for Melody Maker. When you were the editor of Melody Maker, working out of some a sort of porter cabin in Waterloo, <laughs> London, as I recall it, our mutual friend David Sigerson sent me to go and see Richard. <laughs> and David was writing for Melody Maker. And that was just one stage along the way in what's been a pretty impressive journey for you yours impressive, yours <laughs> your very impressive career i mean there's so much to talk about we're gonna have to just focus on the key moments but let's just i mean simon frith called you the best pop critic in the uk i think you've done a lot of writing you've done a lot of editing you've written books one of the things that was actually quite interesting prepping for this is that you say somewhere that, because you had this Damascene moment where you, where you realised you wanted to be a sports writer. Well, you were writing for the Times, I think, and they sent you off to the Olympics and you came back and said, can I be a sports writer instead? <laughs> and you say somewhere, I think, in this long interview that we're featuring on the homepage with Simon Warner, that actually what you realised was that writing about sports was a bit easier than writing about music because you didn't have to write about abstractions, yeah. the colours of notes. Yeah, if you'd been writing about music for a long time, I think that doesn't wear you down exactly, but it, it, after a long time it becomes quite hard to pin down the abstract. It gets harder and harder, strangely yeah. enough. And I think possibly I needed a break from that. And sport is so, in the most obvious sense, it's so kind of unabstract. It's something that happens in front of you and there's a result. You know, you come out of it with a very clear outcome. That's something to write about. Actually, the longer I went on writing about sport, the more I realised that I liked writing about it for exactly the same reasons that I like writing about jazz particularly, which is that nobody knows what's going to happen. You know, you go into a club or a stadium, you know, whether it's the Café Otto or, you know, the Olympic Stadium in Berlin or something. Yeah. And nobody knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Nobody knows. So it's like a football match. Jazz is basically a football match. No, it's not like a football match, but there are... No, I uh, I sort of get that. That sort of indeterminacy of the outcome is very, to me, very exciting. uh, Yes. In both cases. Well... That affords me the opportunity to segue into jazz because a fascinating aspect of your career is that you started writing for local papers in Nottingham where you grew up and played in bands, played in skiffle, but you did the whole gamut, didn't you? You did skiffle, you did folk, you did R&B, a band called the Junko Partners. And then you trained as a journalist, you wrote for local papers. But what I found hard to believe was that you were allowed to write about... (laughs) Albert Isler and the Velvet Underground <laughs> for local papers. 
in yeah. Nottingham. Yeah. Simply because no one knew who these people were and so no one was going to challenge you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, mid-60s, you know, they begin to see that something is happening, you know, the Time magazine youthquake, but nobody on the paper knows what it is, how to identify it, and they see, you know, there's somebody in the office who's like 18 or 19, so they give them a page, you know, there was... <laughs> Sorry about this, but there was me and there was a girl of similar age. She did the fashion, I did the music. And we had a page every week. Yes. And nobody, you know, the sub-editors didn't, or the editors, nobody told us what to do. Nobody said anything about what we did because they didn't understand it. They just ticked it up and put it in the paper, you know, with appropriate pictures. And it was called, the page was called something like The Younger Set. <laughs> Oh, I do hope That's so. Great. <laughs> I'd be disappointed if it wasn't. Uh, but it's true that, you know, I was able to review the first, The Velvet Underground and Nico, you know, got a page lead, Albert Isler's Bells, I think, Ditto, yeah. all sorts of things, you know, wild Did stuff. you get complaints Flying from readers? Brothers. I went out and bought this album on the basis of <laughs> Richard's <laughs> column. What is this noise? I, I never heard a word. I could only assume that nobody read it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this was a paper that at the time, you know, sold 100 120, 130,000 copies a day. You know, it was a local evening yeah. paper. It was a proper, yeah. proper newspaper. Like they had in those days. Like they had. The same newspaper now sells 12,500 copies yeah. a day. Yeah. And as a result, partly of writing about acts like that, you were able to come to London and you got you essentially got a job with Melody Maker. Yeah, um, well, I'd review, you know, I'd done those album reviews. I'd live, I'd reviewed Hendrix and Cream and, you know, all sorts of Georgie fame and, and stuff. In, in uh, Nottingham, playing in Nottingham. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the Floyd and, you know, yeah. kinds of things like that. Yeah. So I had quite a good file of cuttings yeah. to take with me to the Melody Maker. Exactly. And they, I think they thought... How come this guy gets away with writing about this stuff? On his, it must have been unusual. Because you sort of paper. came at the same time as people like Michael Watts, who'd also been on a local paper. Everybody on the everybody, Mel- everybody on the Melody Maker had trained. This is the big difference between the MM in the early seventies yes, and, yes. and the NME in the mid seventies. Everybody on the MM had trained on local papers. Charles but, Worth as well. Yes, uh, yeah, exactly. and ev- pretty much everybody had been in a band as well. That's great. So those uh, are the, in a sense, so the two boxes. And that was a kind of tradition yeah. of the melody maker that, you know, it had been staffed by people who'd generally been failed dance band musicians from the 20s and 30s. And you were a drummer? 20s. I was a drummer, yeah. And I played bits of other Some guitar, you well. played some guitar as well, yeah. So we were all pretty comfortable with each other and all comfortable with musicians as well. And I think that's why we had our little period of, of success at a point when the enemy was still a a pop rag and disc and record mirror, although they had their very good points, you know, were also pop papers, basically. Yes. So Melody Maker was a sort of weightier entity. Yeah, I think it took music more seriously. Yeah, you know, it was easier for us to talk to Robert Wyatt or Robert Fripp or somebody who spoke a kind of similar language. It became a kind of bastion of progressive rock, and in a way it was partly what the NME ended up sort of rebelling against. Yeah, I mean, we, we did to a fault. You know, I was never much in sympathy with the kind of, yes, Genesis, Emerson, Lake and Palmer end of things. No. But there were others on the paper who catered to Well, more sympathetic. They were indeed. <laughs> um, and that was a kind of relief. I mean, I did like some, you know, like Robert Fripp as a person, probably more than I liked King Crimson, actually, but some of them were, you know, were really interesting. I liked Soft, Soft Machine early soft machine, a whole lot. And they were interesting people to talk to as mm, well. Mm. I mean, so 
The first of the three pieces that we've selected to feature on the home page this week is, in fact, an Albert Isler piece uh, written <laughs> just after he died. So, in a sense, to kind of make that point, you were writing about these quite outre jazz musicians. The people that Val Wilmer had written about in, in her book, As Serious as Your Life, but you were also writing, I mean, you make this point in the interview with Simon that you were writing about the acts that became the sort of iconic NME sort of totems, the Velvets and the Stooges and so forth. Actually, Melanie Maker was writing about those acts before the NME ever got their hands on them. Yes, that's true. You know, Tim Buckley and all kinds of people like yeah. that. But the NME devoted itself to that kind of vector of artists, if you can call it that, yeah. in a much more single-minded way than we ever did. The Melody Makers thing was that it covered more or less everything. Yeah. So that in- that would include, you know, Humperdinck if he had a record in the charts. Yeah. Now, I found that quite interesting because I like, you know, crap pop music to some extent, or I did then. As anyway. much as the next, man. As much as the next. Yes. Um, <laughs> or women. Yes, indeed. So I, you know, occasionally enjoyed going to interview somebody from that area of things. Well, you even interviewed Led Zeppelin, didn't you? Right? We had this conversation. You, but, but, yeah, if we're talking uh, well, about According Bobby to the Graham, paper, yeah, you interviewed him, but you had no memory of spending this day with Robert Plant in no. the wilds of Snowdon. No, I remember, an interv- <laughs> I remember interviewing him in the back of a Rolls-Royce Phantom limousine on the way from his manager's <laughs> office in Mayfair to Heathrow when they were off yeah. to America. I remember that. Yes. But I don't remember this interview that you found where I seem to have spent the day with him on a farm. Perhaps in, it was miscredited. You know. That's very unlikely. Let um, me read briefly from this Albert Isler piece because I think you and Jasper might have a good little conversation about Isla and that, what do you mean, spiritual jazz... There's a nice, there's just a nice paragraph here. His technique knew no boundaries. His range from the lowest honks to the most shrill high harmonics being unparalleled. And the tonal variety he employed was astounding. On ballads, for instance, he would use a wide, wobbly vibrato. But even his fastest runs bore evidence of the most exact intonation and articulation. And the key thing is that that passage is preceded by a passage where you write about how he brought jazz back to a sort of wild and primitive thing. So it's important to, I think, contextualise it in that sense, because that was kind of... He did play with such feeling. Yeah. And the the technique didn't dampen that in a way which sometimes technique can. We were talking about this last week in the context of Charlie Parker. that It's difficult sometimes to hear emotion in birds playing where it's not. In either case. No, and I think I emphasise that technical element in that piece on on Isla because, you know, so many older musicians and listeners, you know, just sort of dismissed him as somebody who couldn't play. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember going into Doe Bells when I was still living in Nottingham. I came down from a you know, day trip on Saturday to buy a couple of records and I bought two records at Doe Bell's Jazz Record Shop on Charing Cross Road. One was by an alto player called Ken McIntyre who was a very good kind of post-bop player and the other was Isla's first album, My Name is Albert Isla. And he, you know, so I bought those very, and, and the guy behind the counter looked at me and he said, he said, well, Ken McIntyre's all right, he said, but that bloke Isla, he just can't play at all. <laughs> I love <laughs> scorn being heaped upon one when in a record in shop. A, in a Bell's so jazz funny. record shop, yeah. So funny. I mean, well, I have to say, all the best record shops are like that. Yeah. <laughs> you have yes. to pass your test. 
There's a great one in Henley that's exactly like that. The guy, he's total iconoclast. And obviously really knows his stuff, but if you don't buy what he thinks you should be buying, he gets sort of a bit aggy. <laughs> and he might be right. Possibly, yeah. He's, he's great, though. He's, he's funny. I think he sort of... I end up buying him out of... Not out of, but he had... It was the one place I could find lots and lots of Ellington. And I went on a real Ellington kick and bought, like, 10, 15 Ellington records over the course of, like, several months from this guy. And I think by the end of that, he sort of had a grudging sort of like, oh, okay, you kind of know some, like some good stuff. Hmm. Well, when I was 16, 17, I worked, I had a Saturday job in a record shop. And the guy who ran the record shop was a bit like the people in the newspaper, didn't really know what was happening. So he let me order stuff. So I ordered all these blue notes, which were imports, you know, and very expensive at the time. So I ordered all these kind of you know, Eric Dolphy out to lunch, Andrew Hill, Amazing. You know, all those things. And I hid them under the counter. I would let people only pull them out because I wanted to listen to <laughs> Straight out of high fidelity, isn't it, really? That's so funny. The payback was at Christmas when you had queues of, I have to say, women wanting to buy a Jim Reeves record and they didn't know the title, but they could sing a bit of it to you. And you had to, and you had to get all the Jim Reeves 45s out and play them. <laughs> that was, that, you know, that that was, was earning your money, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I love you because you understand it. I know that I won't forget you. The Isla piece is really nice because it does give a good perspective. I think someone could read it not having listened to Isla and go, oh, actually, I do have some background now and I could go and listen to it. I like the way you make that technical point because it is important that he really did know what he was doing and he was coming from a place of the technique wasn't in the way of him wanting to express what he had to express. And I think that's what makes his playing exciting and what enabled him to do that. Mm, that One of my great regrets is that I never saw him live mm. you know I, I, I wasn't in london when he played his one gig at the lse which was for the bbc for tv which they then wiped and you know only the people who were there have any memories that's disappointing it. yeah one of the things you say richard in this i think it's 2002 interview with simon warner and i imagine you'd probably say the same thing today I loved finding things, Marley or Roxy Music or Laura Nero or Springsteen, and presenting it to people, saying, here's something you haven't heard, go out and hear it, you're probably in for a treat. And I imagine that's that would be a kind of mantra for you. The next piece that we've selected is a Laura Nero piece for The Times. You're already writing for The, for the Times yeah. in 71. We both love Laura Nero, and... I'm just going to read a little bit from that, because, again, it's a bit like what you write about Isla. If voices can be equated with instruments, Miss Nero's is a trumpet soaring strongly to high notes, stretching vowels and breaking consonants, wandering through the quiet songs with all the pathos of Miles Davis. She can swing hard and uses a variable vibrato, which, on a held note, will open slowly, flare for a moment, and flatten out into purity. 
some people find Nero's voice a little bit kind of, I don't know what words they might use, hysterical, challenging. I think her records, we've talked about Lauren Nero, I've written some stuff on on Nero. You got to interview her, which I envy that. I think she was one of the absolute great. (laughs) Certainly, I mean, this would put in context, I think, Joni Mitchell would acknowledge her as one of her few peers, and that says quite a lot. Tell us a little bit about Nero. Well, I I think it was 68 when Eli and the 13th Confession came out. Yeah. And I must have read something, or maybe there was a track on The Rock Machine Turns You On, that very famous... Sampler uh, album, album, yeah. yeah. Anyway, for some reason, I, I bought Eli and the 13th Confession, and I had flu... And I stayed in bed for a few days, and I did nothing but, but listen. listen to that and just kind of metabolised it completely. And uh, thereafter, you know, loved her to bits. And she, she had that wonderful combination of extraordinary musicianship, great control, a sense of adventure, but also that love of kind of brill-building pop and doo-wop. Yeah which came out in, you know, Going to Take a Miracle album covers that she made. But it also kind of suffused everything she did. And I found, because I love that kind of music too, you know, I love the chiffons and the Shirelles and all that stuff. I found that wonderful mm. and, and still do. And, you know, pity she's not still around. I, was, mm. I, I saw her, I suppose, four or five or six times in various mm. places. And every time she was sensationally moving yes you know i think of her as the start of a little line her ricky lee jones and mary margaret o'hara they're my, yes they're my people in that. yeah i mean i suppose one might say eccentric female kind of high wire acts, eccentric a is a bit unkind but he probably you know, is um, certainly not conventional but a, a bit of wildness there in all in all three of them just a kind of wild heart yeah there's so much going on, isn't there? Yeah. And the musicianship is musicianship. extraordinary. Yeah. That fantastic arranger she had, Charlie Colella. Charlie Colella arranged a lot of 60s yeah. pop records. Exactly. I mean, so that sensibility really gifted is there. Man. But then there's this kind of gospel kind of thing going mm-hmm. on. There's lots of mm-hmm. jazzy changes. I mean, to anyone listening, if you've not heard what the sort of first, I would say, four or five Nero records... You know, I think Christmas and the Beads of Sweat mm-hmm. you, you reviewed for New York, New York That's Tenderberry. That's probably almost my favourite, I is think, is Christmas. Mm-hmm. New York Tenderberry is magnificent. I mean, I, I they're like, so rich, aren't they? They are, and of course they have that excitement. Of, those early albums have that. You know, so many ideas being compressed into a, a short space, as often happens when an, an artist is young and new, and then, then they tend to pace themselves a bit more. But I, I really like her last albums as well, I think. you know, Well, all of them. The ones that, you know, Mother's Spiritual. Mother's Spiritual is pretty great. Um, nested. And, I remember you um, wrote about Angel in the Dark towards the very end of yep, her life, yep, didn't you? And yep. you, I think, saw one of her last performances here, which yep. would have probably been the Union Chapel. It was. Yeah. yeah. Were you there? I wasn't there to my to my chagrin, you know, my eternal chagrin. I think I only realised how great she was probably, I hate to say it, after she died. I had New York Tenderbury as a teenager, but I don't think I was ready for it. No. Actually, no. that's the truth. Yeah. 
we're going to just briefly mention the old grey whistle test. <laughs> you could have been whispering Richard Williams, but as it turns out, you 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 have said you didn't terribly like being on television, and they only paid you thirty quid a week. Twenty, 20 quid a week, then it, then which even it, then was pathetic, wasn't it? Really, for being on telly and for writing the script and for delivering doing everything for twenty quid a week. What were they thinking? But the problem was that included in the twenty or thirty quid wasn't choosing the artists. If I'd been able to choose all the artists, maybe I would have stayed there forever. You know? <laughs> and the occasional thing I did, you know, I might have had something to do with Dr. John coming on the show and doing a, you know, doing a little solo piano, 10-minute run-through all the styles of New Orleans piano, which sadly is one of the things that's gone. Is gone. it gone? Oh, completely I would lost. love um, to watch that. I mean, it was magical. And I, I think I might have encouraged them to get Curtis Mayfield in, you know, which was actually my highlight of the whole thing. And I certainly persuaded them to let me interview Ornette Coleman <laughs> live in the studio Excellent. when he was here recording Does that Skies, still exist? Skies of America. That's on YouTube. That's and actually, Ornette is what? fabulous. Right. And that. the other one was interviewing Stevie Wonder. That was unforgettable. He was great. I mean, I didn't have to say anything. And he yeah. spoke so beautifully. Yeah. I mean, I hated being on television. Yeah. Know, so yeah. when the time came to do a second series, I just said, I think this is time. So the next thing you almost uh-huh. became was, was a sort of record company mogul. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, you were essentially... Uh, what a um, word, what a word. Maybe partly because you wrote about acts on Island Records, but, but Blackwell hired you as, as his head of A&R between, what, was it the 72, 73? 73, was there, to, 73 to 76. 76 yeah. it's, quite, it's quite a long time. Island being just sort of the hippest label, really... Yeah. At, that, at that time. Again, yeah. it turned out to be something either that you didn't desperately enjoy or you've said that it wasn't as happy a place by the end as when you started. I think that's true. I think some of the kind of excitement, joy of the early years at Ireland was starting to go by the time I got there. That wasn't, wasn't visible, mm. but they, they were having a lot of success and they were starting to become a, a distributor as well, you know, distributing... Chrysalis and Virgin and Bronze and other labels. So right. it, was, it was quite an operation. It wasn't the little Notting Hill sort of hippie, cool thing that it had been. It was a little bit more... But it had to be a little bit more corporate. Well, it wasn't exactly corporate, but it was certainly more structured. There were very nice people there, and I... It was really, it was three of the most interesting years of my life. I learned a bit about money, you know, mm. that, that most... <laughs> Music journalists don't l- learn no. about what money means in mm. in the industry and how how it's yeah. circulated or not circulated. Exactly, and that was very valuable from that point of view. I enjoyed signing John Cale and Nico. Some great records. Some great records. Richard and Linda Thompson. Richard and Linda Thompson. See the bright lights. Yeah, which was on the shelf when I got there, and nobody, somebody listened to it and hadn't really liked it. Okay. You know, one of the reasons I went to Ireland was Richard Thompson, because I you know, loved him. Mm-hmm. So I said, what's he doing? Somebody said, oh, he made this album that nobody really thinks is any good. So I listened to it, and I thought it was fabulous. Yeah. So I got I talked to Richard, and, you know, he was keen to... Although he was just getting... He and Linda were just getting into Sufism at the time, which was changing their yeah. worldview a bit. But he was very keen for it to be released and to go on the road and do stuff. So that gave that a kick along. That was very satisfying. We have to talk, of course, about one of Ireland's biggest acts in that era, which is Marley, the Whalers. And you... So the third piece 
is another Melody Maker piece. It's from February 73 and probably was the first interview that anyone here had done with Marley. And you, I think, went to Jamaica mm-hmm. to interview mm-hmm. him. So, and you say Marley and his group, The Whalers, have an album called Catch a Fire out here next week. So spring 73. It seems to me this may be the most important reggae record ever made. It's a, the equivalent of Sly's Dance to the Music or Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. I think that's pretty close to the money turned mm-hmm. out to be absolutely mm-hmm. true. And so tell us a bit about Marley and, and the kind of island's role in the sort of propagation of, of mm. reggae in that decade. Yeah, well, that came about because I was offered a trip by Island Records when I was at the Melody Maker yeah. to go to Jamaica and just to hang around for a week and listen to some, listen to, go to some sessions and yeah. think about reggae. Now, you have to remember that at the time, reggae was universally despised in the rock world, in the world of the, the MM and the NME, yes. and the college circuit. And all. It just, you know, it was a kind of novelty music. Desmond Decker was a novelty artist. Yeah, Dandy you know. Livingston, things like yeah, that. That were fatty, hits. Fatty Bum Bum, do you remember that? That was what people yeah. thought reggae was. Or rude reggae rude records, reggae. Yeah, or yeah. the old Scar things. Um, but yeah. I, I, you know, because in the 60s I'd liked Scar, and the idea of going to Jamaica was quite attractive. Blackwell was there, Chris Blackwell, so he took me around a bit, and we went to Dynamic Sounds, where Toots and the Maytals were recording Tumbling Dice, and yeah. Toots didn't know the words. Well... Actually, if you listen to the original, nobody knew knows the words. You can't <laughs> nobody tell. knows any of the words so from Toos Exile on Main So Toos was just kind of going, well, you know, You couldn't great. look the lyrics up but on, it was, on it the was, internet. No. You could not. In the studio, there was, you know, Hux Brown, Winston Riley, Winston Grennan, you know, Jar Cherry, an amazing yeah. rhythm section. Yeah. So it was, to be in the presence of those guys was, was like being in the studio, you know, like being at Stacks of Booker T and the MGs. It was yeah. sensational. Yeah. And then we went to Harry Jay's studio where the Whalers were recording. And Blackwell explained that he'd taken a risk on this. He'd given them, I think, 10 grand or something. I mean, normally, you know, it was $25 a side, Jamaican dollars, you know, yeah. which wasn't very much. Uh, but he'd given them £10,000 to record an album, which was just unheard of. And he was going to see what was going on. Turned out Tosh had spent most of it on <laughs> Collie Weed. Well, <laughs> the studio, let's say the studio had a certain kind of ambience. But it was amazing. And he said, and there's this guy, Bob Marley, in the back. And I said, well, I know about the Whalers, because I'd bought in like 67, I think, mm. on the old white label island singles. Yeah. I'd bought Put It On and who feels it knows it right sunday morning so i i knew about them you knew he was good and i said yeah i, know, I knew who these people yes are. and I, I you know they, those were fantastic records those yeah. original ones so it was no surprise that they were good really good but what you know what they were doing jamming these long tracks fantastic grooves you know with the barrett brothers and, yeah you know, just amazing stuff and i thought this is Marvin Gaye or Sly Stone or Curtis Mayfield or, you know, it's something, it's like that. It's not, it's not, it's not even like Toots and the Maytals. It's a whole other yeah. dimension yeah. Of, of music. So I came back and, and wrote about that. And yeah. it was, of course, very thrilling to see what happened thereafter. Yeah. Could you have foreseen what a, a sort of pop superstar he would end up becoming? Not With sure. records, I, I have to say, by the end of his... Life. I wasn't terribly loving the more commercial sound of Bob Marley and the Whalers, but there's no doubt that Catch a Fire, Nasty Dread, 
extraordinary Lyceum live yeah. album. Exodus. I mean, um, Exodus. Is Exodus, Rastaman Vibration. I mean, that, there yeah. was a run there yeah. of extraordinary records. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he was just far and away the best songwriter to come out of that island, I would say, and yeah. the most unusual. Yeah, he was. He was. Well, he sort of transcended everything. He transcended everything. Yeah. He was like the Bob Dylan of reggae in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And to see, to see how it became global, how his image, how that face, you know, was on T-shirts and posters everywhere in yeah. the world. In yeah. Yeah. Little villages in Africa. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's fabulous to see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean... So that's, I mean, of course, incredibly tragic. That and I went to his them. funeral. Did you? Yeah, which oh, was gosh. something else, because, you know, the whole island just came to a standstill. Wow. Wow. And they had to... There was an amazing ceremony in the National Gymnasium, I think it was called, in Kingston. Yes. And then a, a sort of little motorcade took the coffin all the way across south to north of the island to his village, and I kind of followed it and got to the village... And that was amazing because there were these beautiful green hillsides just filled with rasters and, yeah. you know, and the 12 tribes of Israel people wow. and stuff. Just yeah. Stunning. By this point, you are in fact the editor of Melody Maker. Broadly speaking, you're back. You're back there. Yes. Yeah, either just well, you are either the editor at that point, yeah. or you just resigned. Well, I left Ireland, and then I edited Time Out for a couple of years. Yes. When it was a really interesting magazine, very political. Yes. Very cutting edge art. Yeah. People magazine. who pick up the freebie sheet now would be astonished because I remember reading Time Out in the seventies as a Time Out is the kind of thing that certainly for me and people my generation is like. You know, top 25 cool new bars in London is that's what Time Out represents. It was but. all full of sort of agitprop and, yeah. and demos and, yeah. and, and compendium books and a lot of very sort yeah. of very left wing stuff. A lot of arguments, you know, a lot the, of arguments. The weekly editorial conference was quite an event every week because everybody would be arguing about everything sure. from a kind of dialectical you know, yeah. position. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, I had a poetry column. Had a, you know, the agitprop listings, as you mm. say, you know, your demonstrations this week, your sit-ins, you know, you know that was really interesting, actually. And also, because it, it did theatre and cinema and you know, poetry mm. and everything mm. and sport, I had then a chance to deal with all those things. Mm. It was mm. good fun. I did want to talk a little bit about Melody Maker mm. at the end of the 70s, mm. because, you know, again, as you say in the interview with Simon Warner, the enemy had sort of stolen the march to some extent and, and defined mm. itself mm. as, you know, the weekly sort of Bible for, you know, for punk and, and so forth, yep. post-punk already yep. at this point. And you make the point that he didn't try to sort of compete with the kind of Judy Birchall and Tony Parsons approach to music, but you really put the emphasis on hiring the best writers that you could find in every different genre, and that's how I remember it. Well, it's, you know, it's as any football club manager will tell you, it's all about momentum. And <laughs> the enemy had the momentum, and it was very difficult to, to counteract that. Yeah. And I 
kind of wish I hadn't gone back to the MM at that point. You or can't if, go home again. If I hadn't, I, right. I would never have met you. So. Well, <laughs> that uh, is true. There was, I, would, there was, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. <laughs> there were some really good things, but it wasn't a happy experience. Mm. And there was quite a lot of pressure from IPC, which, of course, owned both the MM and the NME. Um, and that was a weird situation, even when I wrote on the NME, yeah. this this rivalry and kind yeah. of antagonism yeah. that was yeah. going on there. But of course, in the 70s, it was incredibly lucrative for them. If you look back at those yes. magazines from, or newspapers from that time, as I know you spent very much time doing. Um, <laughs> How you'll did you see know? That, you'll see that every time some brand... That's obvious. Yes. <laughs> every time some brand new band had their first album out on Harvest or DRAM or Vertigo, they got a four-page ad, yeah. you know, which was not cheap no. in a newspaper with a 200,000 circuit. Absolutely. Like the Enemy or the MM. And there were pages and pages and pages of these things. So IPC was making a fortune from us. So, you know, no wonder they didn't mess with it too much for mm. a long time. You know, they just kind of, you know, let the editors get on with yeah. what they were doing as long as it was successful for them. In the subsequent years, Richard, you've had a, a stellar career, essentially, or like Fleet Street or whatever the kind of equ equivalent now is, but you held down some prestigious jobs on, you know, broadsheet newspapers. You edited the Sunday Review, The Independent on Sunday, and there was some great stuff in there. You had, you had some terrific writers there. Yeah, that was probably the happiest editing experience I've ever had, the Sunday review of the Independent on yeah. Sunday because it was a beautiful That's vehicle. Great. It was beautiful, wasn't it? It was a lovely format. Yeah. And you could do what you wanted. You've also written a number of books over the years, and the one just I really want to mention more than any other is Long Distance, called the collection that you put together, which has wonderful pieces about Phil Spector and John Lennon and Miles and all kinds of Jack Baker. Some terrific pieces in there. Could you imagine putting another collection together? Because it you know, just scratched the surface, didn't it? Would you be tempted to do that? Probably not. Mm. Probably not. I think by the time I did that, to put that that collection together in whenever it was, 2000, yeah. I had kind of 30 years' worth of quite long pieces to choose from. And I haven't really done many of those kind of pieces since then, not about music, not really. You write wonderful things for your blog. Well, which that's is now the, the blog. How, how the, many years old is that now? Five, six, seven uh, years? Five, yeah. maybe. The blue moment. The blue moment. And, and all my kind of music energy goes into that, really, because I still write about the sport for The Guardian. Yeah. But the blue moment is an attempt to recapture the feeling I had writing for the melody maker in the, at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s when nobody told you what to do. Yeah. And it was just fueled by enthusiasm. That's the best feeling, really. Mm -hmm. You just listen to something and you want to tell people about it. And, and people say occasionally to me with the blog, well, aren't you going to monetize it? And I think, well, no. Because if I did, you know, the income I'm, I make now comes from, the, from writing for The Guardian and writing books and mm. occasional magazine pieces. But the blog is different. And if, I think if I monetized, if I tried to make money from it, then it would change the nature of it. 
really. It's just something I do when I want to, when I feel like doing it, when something comes up, and I write about it in the way I want to write about it. You talk about trying to recapture sort of enthusiasm for writing that you had and writing for the MM in yeah. the late 60s, early 70s. What kind of music enthuses you now? Oh, don't get him started. Uh, <laughs> that's precisely what I, what I intended. Yeah. Well, we could well, be here for a while. I, I mean, I do feel quite... You know, although I, of course, lament the absence of Laura Nero and Miles Davis and Curtis Mayfield and Marvin Gaye and many people, you know, who are not making music anymore, it seems to me that there is just as much really interesting, valuable new music being made now as, you know, in the 60s or when I was young or any time. And I really discovered the truth of that. I, I, I spent three years from 2015 to 2017 as artistic director of the Berlin Jazz Festival, um, Very cool. which is a you know a great festival. I first went there in '69, I think, and it was a pleasure to be invited to do that and to say yes because it's a very challenging, adventurous festival. The audience there they only mm. want challenge; they don't want anything no. bland or banal. So I had really happy three years doing that, and of course I had to listen to an enormous amount of yeah. stuff, and. God, it just was staggering, you know, how much... How much I mean, I knew already because I'd never stopped listening, but just to be focusing on that for three years and to see the richness of what was around was fabulous. You know, I should say I really like what's happening in London now with people like Nubai Garcia and Cassie Kinoshi and Moses Boyd, Shabaka Hutchings... You know. Excellent. Grist to Jasper's Mill, because he sees all these It's funny, because actually, I was in the, from the archives section, which we're going to do later, I was actually going to bring up a piece that I've just added, a John Lewis piece in The Guardian from a couple of years ago, where he talks about that scene, Shabaka Hutchings, and mm. also the Manchester scene, Go Go Penguin, and comparing it, contrasting it, trying to find a common thread with that and the LA West Coast scene that involves Thundercat and... Mm. Kamasi Washington and, and that side of things, and how jazz is actually restaking its claim to the mainstream and its openness and freshness by incorporating stuff from hip hop, by incorporating stuff from. So, yeah, I'm really keen on the stuff that's happening in London at the moment. I yeah. think New Biogarcia is fantastic. Yeah. I think her music's great, and it's really refreshing. I've been to jazz for my whole conscious musical life, but for the longest time of that it was a pretty niche thing and now people are really actually into new jazz and new jazz from london and from around the uk and it's really exciting it is fresh and different i love it it's different in in one very significant way and it's a way that makes quite a lot of older people cynical about it which is people are not quite not listening in the same way not using the same listening techniques that jazz listeners have used for right they're actually 40, enjoying years. it <laughs> well that's <laughs> no, not quite it's, fair no it's not, that's I, not quite it, fair but they're not thinking oh this solo has to have a beginning and this improvisation right, right. has to have a beginning a middle and an end and and it has to be complicated and you know uh, and the more sort of abstruse it is the better it is now these you know moses boyd you know is as good a drummer as i've ever heard in my life yeah much. Mm-hmm. he can play anything but you know, they're looking for grooves, they're looking yeah. for feelings. Yeah, exactly. Um, with the kind of inventiveness that jazz has taught them. And so you go to, you know, one of the venues in London where some of the younger musicians are playing and you find people kind of whooping and whistling in the middle of a solo 
which wouldn't happen. It'd be frowned on in a conventional yeah. church. Yeah. And if an old, you know, if a, a traditional listener wants to come to terms with the new music, then they have to come to terms with that. They have to accept that this is a different kind of thing. Now, I have no idea what its long term is, but some of the things, you know, if you listen to the Seed Ensemble album or the Norija album or Moses Boyd's album or pretty much anything Shabaka Hutchins has done, then you hear real substance. And yeah. You know, real substance, real accomplishment, real imagination, and you can only think that's going to carry on going somewhere, you know, for the foreseeable future. You can only hope, for sure. <laughs> I wonder if you see any parallels between what we're talking about with Ilo, that people didn't like the sound he was making, so they decided that he wasn't any good at playing. Yeah. And in a, perhaps in a similar sort of way, people find it suspect that there's this whooping and whistling during solos, yeah. and it's not what they're used to. It's not yeah. what they have come to think of as jazz, what they put in the yeah. box of jazz. Yeah. Yeah. And it's free from that, so it is met with some scepticism in certain parts, but I don't think that makes it any... I mean, because, as you say, someone like Moses Boyd, he has the technique. He's got technique for days. The way he chooses to use it is not necessarily the way that previously highly technically skilled drummers would have done. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good. I think that's exciting. I think it makes it new. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they're like 360-degree thinkers. You know, Cassie Kinoshi is not just a saxophone player. Moses Boyd is not just a no. drummer. You know, they're, they're seeing the bigger pictures. Mm-hmm. The list of people mentioned in this piece is, is sort of a who's who of contemporary jazz. It's the Comet is Coming and Sons of Kemet, which are two bands fronted by Shabaka Hutchings, a saxophonist, as well as Shabaka and the Ancestors, another one of his bands. Uh, Gogo Penguin, Robert Glasper, Thundercat, Kamasi Washington, Kendrick Lamar. And then also an interesting perspective that John Lewis brings in is Donnie McCaslin, who plays sax on David Bowie's Black Star, and Courtney Pine as well. So it's a really, really great piece. I would just highly recommend everyone read it because it features interviews with a lot of those people and they all have interesting stuff to say. It focuses on how hip-hop and jazz are fused in the initial part and how a generation of jazz musicians grew up with hip-hop in their blood. And that's one of the things that enables this rejuvenation, should we say, of, of jazz for a modern audience and yeah. for young musicians. Further to the point that we were thinking earlier about sort of the old guard, Robert Glasper says that there's a tendency for the old guard to sneer at hip-hop, but jazz can learn so much from hip-hop. I'm reminded of how Miles Davis, when recording Miles Smiles, told Herbie Hancock not to use his left hand at all. It made Herbie approach playing in a different way. He couldn't play chords, so it forced him to find other ways to express himself. And it's the same when you're working in the world of hip-hop. You have to use repetition, you have to play sounds that cut through. Sometimes that can be even more difficult than the most complicated improvisation. I think that's a very valid point. Like, if you want to create a great breakbeat, there's a sonic language, there's a feel that you have to understand. Dream of a land my soul is from I 
I'm going to throw one last thing at you, Richard, here, because I think of you as an admirably modest man, but I love this. In my time, I was right more often than anybody else. I was not wrong very much. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I picked that one up because actually I think it's true. I think it's true. And I, it's not just about flattering you, but your taste was fairly unerring, actually. And you were writing about people that no one else was paying any attention to way back when and it's been a pleasure sort of following your instincts and your recommendations you know if that's ultimately what you enjoy most about what you do is is actually just you know turning somebody onto something that they haven't heard before i think your track record is pretty good you know if you say something's good i will i will listen to it if you say something's terrible i might not bother nick hornby wouldn't agree with you i think he still wants the 33 shillings he spent on van der graaf's generators h to he who i'm the only one on the basis of a review would you still recommend that that's the question that's, yes. For all, yeah, you yes, would. Yeah. Yeah, I, like, I like Peter Hamill a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah I you know, agree. What he's doing now is great, so sure, Brilliant. why not? Which has been an absolute delight just going through your life and work in that way. And, you know, thank you so much for coming. But as we say, stick around because we're just going to talk about the various other things yeah. that are, you know, on the homepage this week. We lost Peter Fonda at the age of 79. I genuinely felt sad, actually about Peter Fonda's death. and It inspired us to put together a feature around Easy Rider, which, of course, is, I would say, he's certainly most famous for, for his role as you know, Captain America in that extraordinary film Dennis Hopper made. So we happen to have a couple of contemporary pieces that are just really, really interesting. You know, came out when the movie came out, 1969. So it is 50 years since Easy Rider, as well as 50 years since so many other things. <laughs> but there's a, the late Charlie Gillett reviewed it for Record Mirror. And then in this wonderful underground paper from Atlanta, The, the Great Speckled Bird, the excellent and fascinating Miller Francis Jr. wrote a long sort of think piece about what Easy Rider meant. So just just briefly to sort of touch on that, because Easy Rider is a film, but it's a kind of rock and roll film. And it came with, with a soundtrack and a soundtrack album. And for many, I mean, you, before we started recording, I think you actually admitted, I'm not sure I ever saw Easy Rider. I think I've been thinking hard about that, and I think now I have. <laughs> it, would have it would have been unusual Sorry. not to have seen Easy Rider. I, well, I haven't seen it. Okay. There, so I'm sitting here staring, but two people who <laughs> may have were, not seen it. You have it. to say, you know, of course it was a very important film, and of course I saw it, he said now. Um, <laughs> he says now but, confidently. Uh, but in, you know, 69, 70, 71, there were a fantastic number of really great films coming from Hollywood, independent films yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, it, was a, it was a fabulous time. And I guess it was one of the first that used a sort of rock and roll soundtrack. And um, notably, they actually spent way more licensing the soundtrack than they did on making the film. Yeah. It was like the budget for the yeah. film was like three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. The, the, yeah. the licensing cost about a million dollars. So... It's like two and a half, three times as much yeah. to just license the soundtrack. But obviously then the film grossed like 60 million. Yeah. So. 
well, not, it's not such a bad a, return. It was such a phenomenon, wasn't it? Uh, there were a lot of kind of B movies about the counterculture and mm-hmm. kind of Roger Corman style mm-hmm. films like like The Trip. The trip. And yep. I think they presumed that this was just going to be another of those. Just a couple of guys on motorcycles mm-hmm. driving from Los Angeles through the desert uh, all the way to New Orleans and with some you know acid trips and hippies and so forth along the way. Miller Francis says this is a film made not by but despite the movie industry. And Charlie Gillett says very astutely, the success of Easy Rider will undoubtedly mean that Hollywood will start handing out money to other young people who say they've got something to say. It's unlikely that any of them will uh, make a film which is as consistently entertaining as Easy Rider or as effective in communicating its maker's intentions. I mean, I've seen Easy Rider probably two or three times, not for a while. I do think it is a great film in its way. You know, the chances of of giving uh, an acid-crazed Dennis Hopper a few hundred thousand dollars to make a film, you wouldn't really kind of uh, assume anything particularly worthwhile would come out of it. But it is... It is just a great... I mean, along with the Woodstock Festival, along with a lot of things that happened in 69, Easy Rider really kind of brings this this seismic decade to a kind of head. And it's it's interesting to, to sort of reappraise it at this time when, you know, it's very much... It looks at the kind of, you know, them and us. And those who've seen it know how it ends. And it's very much a kind of... Right now, it's it's kind of like kind of anti-fascists against sort of Trump rednecks. It's a sort of tragic denouement in the film. The music is phenomenal in it, I think. Great, great songs, sort of defining songs of the era. Hendrix's If Six Was Nine, The Weight by the band. And so it kind of, for me, I suppose it, it stands as almost like a kind of seminal late 60s rock event. Sing a song. I mean, you weren't—you were never really a hippie. I'm—I'm kind of thinking. I was hippie for a week. Hippie for a week in 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 1968 when we had a happening in Nottingham, and uh, Paul Smith, the clothes designer who ran the menswear department of a boutique in Nottingham. Yes. He made two caftans, one, one for him and one for me. And, um, yeah, great. 20, 25, 25 shillings each. Um, Do you still have it? Well, uh, I did. I lent it to him for an exhibition and it disappeared. Oh. Uh, but the great thing about this caftan was, you know, I mean, it was a happening. It was, you know, let, let it all hang out kind of, you know, we were no longer mods for a week. We were going to be, you know, not uptight anymore. But, you know, but the trouble was this caftan. He made the armholes so small I couldn't move. <laughs> so you were very uptight. <laughs> very. And I had a Tibetan prayer bell as well. Um, oh, Leather thong. I'd give oh, for a picture yeah. of that. Uh, and you'll never guess who came to play. We, what we did, we showed Kenneth Angus Scorpio Rising on the wall. Wow. And we had a bubble machine. And the band that came from London to play was the Social Deviants. Featuring this may have been Mick, one of the great featuring, happenings of featuring all time. Mick Farron, who were at that point probably second only to the Downliners sect as the worst band I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fantastic story. Sorry, I'm you so asked, glad you asked I'm glad we talked about Easy Rider. If, <laughs> if only that it, that it produced that anecdote. <laughs> Amazing. We'd like to be a mod pretty quickly. <laughs> and Easy Rider makes quite a nice segue, actually, into our Doesn't it audio interview for the because week. Because they start in Los Angeles, and who are we talking about? 
We're talking about Arthur Lee of Love. We've got a couple of clips for you, one now and one at the end, where he talks about various things. It's quite an interesting interview. He talks about meeting Hendrix for the first time and then recording an album with Hendrix. And also, it's from 1980, and he's talking about possibly getting the band back together, letting bygones be bygones, and that sort of thing. So we can play that clip now, in fact. You talk about that original band. Are you still in contact with all those people? Snoopy was over yesterday. And what we're talking about doing is uh, either after, uh, probably after I get these uh, albums that I have in the can out of the way, uh, as well as what I did with Jimi Hendrix that never has been released yet, you know, um, then maybe I will go and uh, see if I can round up my old crew and we'll, you know, see if we'll let bygones be bygones and make ends meet. Talking about that, I, I'm not afraid of doing that. I really, I'd really like to do it because there are personal things that happen. I mean, like you could take it must something must have happened with um, with um, the Zeppelin. Something must have happened with um, the Association to getting back together now. You know, and the Birds got back together. So why not us? I mean, not because they did it, but I think it'd be a good idea because I really like the way um, Brian writes. And I like and I Snoopy came by and he played some stuff for me and I like his stuff so I think it'll be a a real uh, nut you know. What I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so what has Brian, for example, been doing for the last ten years? I'll give you his phone number. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> do you really think that it it would work to get all those guys back together after such a long gap? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course it would work. You think so? Yeah. Plus, <laughs> well, it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. I've heard a funny thing. Somebody said to me, you know that I could be in love with almost everyone. I think that people are the greatest fun. So that is 13 years after the Magnificent Forever Changes, one of the sort of defining kind of psychedelic albums that came out of Los Angeles. And it's by John Tobler. And, you know, on a just sort of a personal level, John Tobler in Zigzag was the way into Love and Arthur Lee for me because uh, they were they were obsessed by Arthur Lee. I don't know how many pieces Tobler wrote about Arthur in the 70s, but there were a fair number. So I just got, you know, I bought De Capo and I bought Forever Changes and I bought the first Love album and I still think they are incredible. They're just brilliant. And Arthur was some kind of genius, I think, even though by this stage he's about to release 
a new album just called Arthur Lee, which I re-familiarised myself with on Spotify, and it is truly terrible, including a really, really awful version of the mighty Seven and Seven Is, which is that's the most... my favourite punk record. It is the is it? No. absolutely. It's, it's one of the most ten years before the fact thrilling pop records ever made. So that's what it is, and and Arthur, I mean, it's, that's a lovely clip. Yeah, it's and, a great and, clip. Because he sounds a bit downbeat at the start yeah. of the interview, and I mean, Arthur often was a bit downbeat, but he, but you kind of got him going, and he could be pretty funny. And I love yeah. that. Like, do you think it'd be a good idea? No, <laughs> yes, of course it'd be a good idea. It never did happen. I mean, he he did occasionally, I think, sort of work with Snoopy. You said you might you, you vaguely remember. Yeah, I interviewed Snoopy, Snoopy some, probably about 71, 72, Alban Snoopy Fister, who was Fister, Swiss. Yes, yes. Was Swiss. He was, was Swiss. Swiss. Drums and keyboards, I think he also played, and he was not in the band anymore. And okay. He just wandered into the Melody Maker office, as people used to do, you know. And sometimes we'd take him to the Golden Egg on the corner. <laughs> the Golden Egg! For lunch. And, I love that and name. Lunch comes and interview. I remember the interviewing Golden Caroline Boucher about Led Zeppelin. She, she told me that she interviewed Led Zeppelin well, at the we, Golden Egg. It was on Fleet Street, yeah. and Disc and Music Echo and the Melody Maker on the same corridor, separated by Rugby World, <laughs> Cycling Weekly, and Cage. <laughs> Birds and aviary. <laughs> um, so we used the same golden egg. And I remember interviewing Brian Ferry in the golden egg. It's so glamorous, isn't it, now? It sounds so glamorous. It's not the Ritz, is it? No, we can do the golden egg. The golden I suppose it was maybe a level above a wimpy. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> That kind of vibe. Well, so anyway, love. We have a couple of other love audio interviews on RBP, but this is this is an interesting thing to hear about. And he does talk mm. about Jimmy. I mean, one of these when I interviewed Arthur, what I quickly realised was that he did carry around a level of resentment that, in a sense, he was the original black hippie. He was the first African American from LA, although he'd been born in he, he was born in Memphis, who went to see like the Birds, mm. you know, the Whiskey or mm. or Ceros. And kind of thought, well, I could do this, even though I'm black. I'm going to become like the first black hippie. And I think Arthur always felt that he didn't get the credit. That in a sense, certainly on a sort sartorial level, he defined what a black hippie Ooh, could look yeah. like. And Jimmy took that, yeah. Sly took that, and so on and so forth. And there was a bitterness there because certainly by 1980, by the time I interviewed him in the early 90s, you know, he was kind of on his uppers. He was. And of course, he then he ended up going to prison in a, in a real a real sort of travesty of justice for sort of letting off a, a pistol outside his house. And you know, it was a messy life, Arthur's. Suffice to say, you know, if anyone listening to this has never heard particularly Forever Changes, I would say it is one of the, the ten greatest long playing, you know, rock or psychedelic pop records ever made. I've never stopped listening to it from their first boy. I think it's quite remarkable but so there we go that's that's, that's the new we'll, we'll hear clip. A, yeah we'll hear we'll a play clip. another clip about meeting Jimmy hendrix for the first time which is a really nice clip that'll be at the end but yeah. i think beyond that we need to move things on to we'll move on the to the archive section yeah exactly so just in in the absence of our dear colleague mr pringle we're just going to talk about a handful of pieces for subscribers that are 
going into the library this week. Shall I just start with it? Just, there's yeah, an early Pink Floyd piece when they were still the Pink Floyd. Record Mirror 1967, Peter Jones talking to Roger Waters. And just a little quote to pick out from that that amused me. I suppose you could describe us as the house orchestra of this new movement. Saw them on the package tour that year at the Theatre Royal in Nottingham. And going from the bottom, the bill was Air Apparent, Amen Corner, The Move, The Pink Floyd and The Jimi Hendrix Experience. Oh. And everybody had 20 minutes. Yeah. So that was set the controls for the heart of the sun. And I think... <laughs> yeah, so they just played the one track. <laughs> Sid wow. was there, of course. Then I think Hendrix had half an hour. Gosh. Uh, so you saw the Sid era Floyd, is that's not right, bad. I, I mean, I that's the only Floyd I'm afraid I will countenance pretty much. <laughs> but... Well, how great! What an incredible bill! <laughs> I thought because I thought you might be you know, throwing something like an Acloda Rogers. None of those bills were bizarre, weren't they? No, no, it was quite good. But that's pretty in, hit in, in that respect. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think we'll Next. jump forward yeah. quite quite a way to 1995, just because we're sort of running short of time. But this is a really great piece in ID by Frank Broughton on Sean Coombs, Puffy, P Diddy, Puff Daddy. How many, any how other many names? names? So Diddy, many names. There are any variation of the initial P and Diddy or Puff Daddy or whatever. But, I mean, he is one of the great rappers turned moguls of hip-hop. Really. You say he's the second richest he's man the second in the history of hip-hop. He's the richest man today in hip-hop after Jay-Z and after him is Dr. Dre. So this is a really great piece from 1995, so really early in the Puff Daddy story. And it's quite a long piece and it's very interesting in that it talks about him as a record man, sort of first and foremost. I'll just read it a little bit. Music, as we know, is a narcotic, and it's no coincidence that the average hip-hop business is run with all the panache of a high-level cocaine distribution network. Puffy's empire is no exception. The traditional symbols of corporate power are here, the two-ton desk, the briefcase, the heavy decor, a few attentive secretaries, but there are also the signs of the street, quote, keeping it real. In place of the middle managers, there are Puffy's homies, the urban soldiers busily promoting his records to DJs and radio stations. Instead of a sharp suit and expensive shoes, Puffy pads around in his socks, wearing a custom black and yellow ice hockey shirt with his name on the back. And instead of facile company mottos, bad boys' offices are signposted with slogans like, losing is for losers. <laughs> but so, Sean Coombs' was story Trump's great slogan, wasn't it? starts at Uptown... Records where he was an intern, like washing cars and getting coffee and running under the tapes and Andre Harrell, correct? Yeah, yeah. But then one of the A and R guys executives leaves, and Puffy takes his boss to dinner, and just sells himself into this vacant position, and says, "Look, I'm young. You're making music for young people. You want me there because I know what young people want. Simple as that." And it worked. Mm. And he took Mary J. Blige and put her on a track with Father MC and. That single was very successful, went gold. And then he masterminded Mary J. Blige and Jodeci's debut albums and, and just kind of everything snowballed from there. And so it, it's just sort of early look into what makes Puff Daddy tick. And it concludes with a quote about him saying, with no hint of humour whatsoever, how afraid he is of getting old. So it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting piece. I think it's well worth a read if you're at all interested in mm hip-hop and, and that scene as it developed in 95. Yeah. Yeah, he says, I can hear a hit record. I don't know how I hear it, but I'd just be knowing it. And he also says, he claims, I can make a star out of anybody. Probably not true, but I think, I mean, 
incredibly important figure in the story of R&B. That whole kind of creation of hip hop soul, yeah, and, and, yeah, epitomised by by Mary J. Blige, yeah, was really a very smart kind of move to to make her yeah. a much more kind of relevant and contemporary yeah. kind of R and B singer, for and, example. And Frank Broughton in the piece does make that exact point that it's Puff Daddy that's pioneered that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't like a lot of his music at all, but I, I do appreciate his, yeah. the, the role he, he played at that time. Yeah. You've got some, some more recent some pieces, more haven't recent you? Pieces. There's Boz Skaggs from 2001, an interview with Adam Sweeting, uh, talking about an album that's just come out at the time, Dig. And we were talking about Boz Skaggs earlier, and a, a couple of his most recent albums in the last few years have actually been really great. Mm. Well, so, I know that Richard's a fan, because he and I just happen to have talked about some of these recent Skaggs albums, and... They're just, they're just great, aren't they? I yep. mean, if you like that kind of thing, yep. they're, they're done really, really well. He's a master now. Yep, he is. And if they... I don't know, if, if, if I could choose somebody to go and see in a club tonight, it would probably be him, just to feel good, because his bands are always great. Yeah. He's really good live. What's next? Next up, a radical shift in tone to Punjabi MC. I had a piece, a short album review of Punjabi MC's The Album. Now, Punjabi MC, Rajinder Singh Rai, a British producer of, I mean, you guessed it, Punjabi ethnicity, mm. who did a lot of stuff in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, trying to fuse banger and hip-hop, basically, and had a massive, massive hit, actually, that featured Jay-Z, Mundian Tulbachki which if you say Bangra to anyone, that's the track that's going to pop into their head. It's a pretty great track. We actually listened to this whole album yesterday, Barney and I. I was really enjoying it. And it was great. It, yeah. You know, there are some really interesting tracks on it. And this is a review, as I said, Dave Simpson in The Times reviewing it. And he makes the point that some of them are misses. Some of the sort of hip-hop gangster rap stuff just doesn't really fly. But that a lot of the stuff that delves into Indian classical music and has Boona beats and Bangra sounds in it is just really exciting and different to mm. other stuff that's going on. So I just thought that was a nice piece to, to mention. Moving swiftly on to borrow Mr Pringle's trademark phrase, an interview with Akala from 2006. Akala being a rapper and generally politically active figure. He's, he's appeared on Question Time and that sort of thing in more recent years. And he's a really interesting character. And in 2006, he's just been nominated for a MOBO award mm. and so this interview is in light of that and he's making interesting points I'll just read a quote he's talking about violence on record in the context of hip hop all the same Akala sees no point in glorifying violence on record the bloodthirsty machismo that fuels much US gangster rap and UK grime is absence from his lyrics I don't want to hear about anyone rapping about how much of a murderer they are, he says. I would like to hear about our environment, but from a realistic standpoint. And the realistic standpoint is that people die and go to prison. That's all that happens. And that is not something, in my opinion, that requires any glorification. And he talks about growing up, quote-unquote, in fact, in the PC quotes, quote-unquote, in the hood on a council estate. And he brings that perspective in an incredibly eloquent way to everything he does he manages to say things in a very 
down to earth but precise and cutting way. And he, I think he's a very capable and potent social commentator, mm. both musically and politically. Yeah, I've seen him on TV, and he's mm. an impressive guy. Yeah. The last thing is a live review of Dave, rapper Dave. The Coco, Dave. The Dave. David Santan. And Lisa Verico goes to see this, writes about it in the Times in 2017, and is totally taken by Dave, and writes, this extraordinary eloquent teenager is as adept at educating his audience as he is at entertaining them. Under different circumstances, Dave might be Britain's youngest MP, or even its first black prime minister. And I think... That speaks volumes. Dave has this year really blown up and has, has become really huge. And mm. I think it speaks volumes to just his eloquence and his, I think, restraint in how he delivers a lot of what he talks about. He's he's a lot less macho than a lot of UK hip hop and grime is, and he's quite sensitive and talks about issues like toxic masculinity and that kind of thing in a way that is accessible to young men in the UK. And I think he's certainly to be lauded for that and I think some of his music is really great and so that's it from my end yeah so we're going to go out with another clip and uh, when I interviewed Arthur I remember him taking me back to this house that his current girlfriend's apartment in the valley in, in, in San Fernando Valley and he pulled out this old cassette recorder and played me this track that he had produced in 1964 for a soul singer called Rosalie Brooks called My Diary, and Jimi Hendrix plays guitar on it. And this quote explains how that came about, how that happened to be. Great. So it's Arthur on Jimmy, and it remains for us to thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Bernie. Thank, thank you, Jeff. It's, it's a great honour. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for coming. And we'll be back next week with Lucy O'Brien as our guest, and Mark will be back from his holiday in Tuscany. So we'll see you then. Thanks again. Bye. Bye-bye. Where did you meet Hendrix? Where did you, how did you know him? I met him in L.A. Um, I did a record. I wrote a record for a lady by the name of uh, Rosalie Brooks. And I think it was 1964 or something like that. And I wanted a sort of a, a Curtis Mayfield um, guitar feeling, sort of like um, she was a gypsy woman, you know, that, that type of thing. And this guy said, I know the guy, it's perfect for that. And it was Jimi Hendrix, and here this guy comes in playing left-handed, and I'm looking at him, and he's got real long hair, and uh, it looks like he's been on the road all his life, and he's 10 years old, you know what I mean? <laughs> And that's how I met him, man. I met him over on Western Avenue in L.A. Hmm. It's a gas. And then <coughs> and the next thing I know, he was playing with Little Richard or someone, and I knew Richard, you know. So uh, that's how I met him. And by the way, the record that I did with, um, the record was called My Diary by Rosalie Brooks. And if I, my memory serves me well, it was uh, number one in Los Angeles, you know. I never got a dime for it, man. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I was just too young in the head to take care of my business. Could it be? Why did my mother find my diary? My diary. My diary. That was Arthur Lee in conversation with John Tobler in 1980, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Richard Williams, whose blog is online at thebluemoment.com. 
The host was Bonnie Hoskins, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Every music clip will be Albert Isler. Sorry, that's really, that was so crass of me. I think I'll go now. (laughs) 